This episode of Homeschooling in Real Life is brought to you by Caroline's Coffee. You can find them online at carolinescoffee.com. Before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that the best way to get Homeschooling in Real Life, the podcast, delivered directly to your listening device is to head on over to iTunes and to subscribe to our show. Each week when we produce new podcast material, it will come directly to you without you having to do anything. So head on over to iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review as well? We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. This is Homeschooling in Real Life. Welcome to the Homeschooling in Real Life podcast. Join your hosts as they dive into difficult topics that you might not find covered at your local homeschooling convention. Veteran homeschooling parents Andy and Kendra Fletcher use humor, honesty, and grace to discuss just what it looks like to homeschool in real life. Hey, this is Fletch. And this is Kendra. We want to welcome you to episode 87 of the Homeschooling in Real Life podcast. You know, this is the last of our rebroadcasts, and we kind of have this set up uh, in two ways. One, we're we're finally finishing these rebroadcasts on our uh, mid-season break. But when we come back, the very first episode of our next season will fit with this one like a hand in a glove. This is Losing Our Religion. It is almost our number one downloaded episode of all times mm. because this is the one where we share our story. Yeah, and our story is one of great religious activity, um, lots of spiritual stuff. People, I think, thought, wow, when they saw our family or what we were doing, and yet it was just so empty and yuck behind it. So yeah. we want to share that story with you and, and the way God pulled the rug out from underneath us in a very dramatic way with a couple of our children. So why don't we get right to it, and then we will see you at the end. back. Let's uh, start really quick, Kendra, with why do we feel it's important to tell this story? Well, L- let's keep this short. The gospel. Yeah. <laughs> we we made a transfer from rigid homeschooling, mm-hmm. and, and I wouldn't use the term legalistic, although people might be hearing the story and say, oh, that's what it sounds like, mm-hmm. from rigid homeschooling, rigid family life, rigid religion, to the gospel. Yeah. And really, I mean, as we unfold this story for you... Um, that rigidity was directly tied to our own hope shifting because we had put our hope in methods and the way we were going to homeschool and, well, just the fact that we were going to homeschool and that we were intentional Christian parents who were going to pour this stuff into our kids. All of that is excellent, but it isn't our hope. Right. Yeah. So that's why we want to share this story. We think it has value. We actually, if you've listened to 44 episodes of Homeschooling in Real Life and and you know, we hope that you're sharing this with other people and that you listen to the next 44 episodes. You're going to hear terms like hope shifting. You are going to hear the gospel over and over. And that's another thing people said to us all over that convention convention floor. Thank you for continuing to point people to Jesus. So we're going to do that again on this episode. So where do we get started here? Well, I think we can begin at the beginning and just very briefly say that, you know, I was raised in a home by people who love the gospel and um, just have never known a time when I didn't want to follow God. So fast forward to college, I meet you, you met God where? Well, I was going to say I was raised in a family that was uh, just cradle Episcopalians from the East Coast. So, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the Episcopalian Church, I always like to say it's like Catholic light. Um, it's the Protestant version of uh, the Catholic Church because so many things were similar. The, and I came to faith in high school through Young Life Ministries, which um, one of those little hidden terms in Young Life is it's a sin to bore a kid. So I know that when I met Christ, it was in a very exciting, powerful way amongst my peers and parachurch leaders. And then I like to tell people now, I'm in my late 40s. I've never not been in a community group. 
I mean, since I came to faith in high school, I was always I was in a, a student group, and then when I went to college, I was in a college group, and then the Christian Medical Dental Society and dental school, and then as soon as we hit the ground here in town, we were in community groups. So mm-hmm. I've never not known living in community in my faith and having people rub up against against me, you know, ironing, sharpening iron. Is that right? Ironing, ironing. Sharpening. <laughs> there was no ironing involved. <laughs> there actually wasn't even any iron involved. But you know, having people kind of brush up against you and point you to better decisions and helping you make better choices. I've never not known that, which really gets us into marriage and dental school and then coming to town here with two little boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, he was four, that oldest child. And it was purely because I felt like it was going to be a better educational environment for this precocious, bright boy who was already learning, who had already learned to read. So we've talked about that too. Um, and we just began homeschooling because we thought it was a good choice for him in the moment. But never did I think it was going to become a lifestyle. Um, now, you know, never did I think he would graduate from our homeschool. Uh, and that's in what happened and we're still homeschooling you know all these years later um in that time period fletch we were attending a church that became very very concerned about seekers so yeah, if people are familiar yeah. with the whole seeker sensitive movement of the and, 1990s yeah I was say late 90s uh-huh, that was it the whole willow creek you know very very uh wide but very very shallow and um can i butt in really quick here there was also something and i want you to address it mm. um where were we in parenting at this point you want me to actually say what well, we were doing? Well, I mean, at the time, we were very involved in growing kids God's way yes, as a we ministry. Were. And I we don't we need were. to I don't want to go down that path or mm-hmm. talk about the controversy there, mm-hmm. but we were very much inclined to raising our kids with a system. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with um growing kids God's way or those kind of classes, th- there's a tendency, well, just the title alone, you know, if yeah, you do it this way, exactly you're doing it say, God's yeah. way. Yeah. So I mean, maybe that's enough that, said. And I wanted to just point out that we were parenting yes. with a system. A system yeah. and a whole lot of purpose and um again, purpose isn't bad at all, no. but it was definitely uh, if if you do A, B and C, your result will be yeah. this. So you know? we dove in after leaving this church, we, we now we're up to a couple more kids. We ended up with kind of a reformed view mm-hmm. of uh, theology, and mm-hmm. but we ended up in uh, a little Presbyterian church mm-hmm. and then a little kind of a reformed Baptist church, mm-hmm. and that's where the story gets a little serious. But oh, wait a minute, you're not going to leave yeah, us hanging. We're, we're <laughs> really? not going to go there yet. We'll okay. be right back after this break. All right, so one of the things that we thought would be fun to do would be to interview some of our friends that lived with us while we were going through these changes in our marriage and our family. So I grabbed them on the phone and I asked them, you know, what were we like or what was the situation like at the time? And I'll play those in and around our story tonight. I hope you like them. You guys coming over to our house in Salinas and sitting down and and wanting to have a serious conversation with us about um, kind of doctrine, theology, and and you kind of came and challenged us and said, "Hey, this is this is what we're seeing in Scripture," and um, and I think you know Lisa specifically said, "Well, that's that's not what I see in Scripture," and and your challenge was, "Well, then find find your God uh, in Scripture," and and that so there was a push there. Well, we're back and ready to tell you the rest of our story. So we, up to this point, you know, we've made some church changes. We've made a huge theological change. And tell me this, Kendra, did we have an attitude? Well, yeah, this is the problem. So it's always great to study uh, about God. Um, But when our study of God and what we think about God becomes more important than God, pride overtakes everything. And so we really, we really thought and voiced and would, would laugh with other friends who had the same theological bent, bent about how other people were just so theologically inferior. Yeah. And I'd like to get, you (laughs) remind me later to get to the point about graduate church. Remember that I said that. So I'll get to that later. Okay. So, you know, we, we've ended in this theological position where we really felt we needed to make some changes Mm -hmm. and we were just kind of hitting a roadblock. And this is someplace I want to talk really quick. A lot of time homeschoolers, 
um, either imagine or create their own roadblocks in the church they're worshiping in. And so we did not have that. We did not create it. It was not imaginary, but I've seen this happen a lot. Do you know what I mean, Kendra? Where they, oh, the the church is just against us. You know, we're we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and the church just doesn't understand that we're homeschoolers, and they're negative against us. And there very well may be some truth to that, but a lot of time homeschoolers create battles that just don't need to be created. Right. And it's just the whole let's just play well with others. Mm-hmm. We were playing well with others, but there were some things, but there were some things in church that we were looking for that just were never ever going to happen. Right. And one of those was, it turns out it's a system mm-hmm. out there called the Family Integrated Church Movement. Mm-hmm. And we had met some like-minded folks. Funny enough, they were the same group that we had met prior. Yeah. They were pro-homeschool. They were looking for a family integrated church model that just didn't exist in our area. Okay. Now, so for those who don't know, what is family integrated church? Well, you know, that's the idea that there is going to be no programs outside of the family. So the church meets together as a family and there is no youth department. There is no Sunday school classes. There is no, you know, to the extreme, there is no nursery. There is, you know, your family is the unit that is kept together for worship. And all that is fine, right? That's that, that in theory is fine. Absolutely. It it had become a model. It had become a movement and it had become well, we'll get into the rest of that in just a second. But, you know, that was what we were looking for. We found a church. They were like-minded in theology, like-minded in practice. Um, it, you weren't going to be odd to be a homeschooler there. Not at all. You were going to be very welcome and accepted. And things just kind of progressed along, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what unfortunately I think happened in us, and I'm I'm going to talk a lot about us and not so much that, because, you know, there's listeners from maybe that part of our life that are still involved even in that church, and I don't definitely don't want to offend them or you know point a finger. I'm just saying, for us, mm-hmm. there became this idea of again. Remember what we said we started our parenting in, in a system. Right. Suddenly, we were doing uh, a system of church. Yeah. And this is the way to do church, and this is the best way to do church. Mm-hmm. And you and I, along with others, got to be a little nose up in the air, or what. Proverbs would say a haughty look mm-hmm. towards those that weren't doing it the same way. Right. Absolutely. I think that's that's a very apt description. Um, and I would I would just add to that too that anybody who wasn't doing what we were doing was wrong. No, we would not say that. You and I were yeah, kind we enough to not say that to somebody's face, but that was definitely our mindset. Yeah. If you weren't homeschooling, if you weren't of a reformed theological bent, if you're, um, if maybe the wife worked, oh, <laughs> and the a, de- you know, like yeah. any of those things, if you were going to send your girls to college, you know, like, yeah, you were wrong. Right. Or if there was any form of schooling other than in the home, homeschooling by the parents. Right. Absolutely. So as we kind of progressed in that, very quickly we recognized that we were heading somewhere we didn't want to head. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I just saw that that there were a number of us that seemed to be kind of folding into a very conservative um, homeschool church culture. And uh, and in a way, you and Kendra did that, but, but then you didn't do that because... Um, you know, everything always still seemed to be about, uh, you know, you, you held on to Jimmy Buffett and that fun and that fun side and the mango mango kids and uh, and and the movies. Let's look at let's look at uh, movies and how they impact culture and look at Christianity in movies. Knowing now, I would be able to go back and say, "Oh yeah, like Fletch was in flip flops, <laughs> and then Fletch wore shorts, and Fletch wore a Hawaiian shirt, and we did pool parties at your house, and we did the back porch at your house, which all kind of lended itself to be a little more edgy than what I think the the whole would have been." Um, and I think what you did was um, that you were you were seeing everything that we were seeing and you were experiencing it, you were participating in it, but but you had this kind of extra filter that allowed you to see beyond that, which I don't think I had um, at the time, nor did many of the other folks. So it kind of it was to me it was kind of funny because it felt like you were always 
um, had a foot in, in two different worlds. I want to circle back to my story of salvation again. I was saved in young life, and I can remember sharing the gospel and it being filled with joy and life was vibrant and it wasn't the new Christian life I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the entire Christian experience was that way. And it was very much centered on Jesus and very much centered on the gospel and on what he did. And I can remember losing that very quickly as we got to this new church that we we had our thumbprint on. Our fingerprints were all over the formation of that new body of believers, right? Yeah. I mean, we were we were one of the core starting families. Mm-hmm. And so as we kind of progressed in that, we began to notice something wrong. And I can remember a very pivotal point in our lives. And that was, believe it or not, a radio program. There were no podcasts yet, but there was a radio program called The White Horse Inn. And they decided to do a show called Christless Christianity. And it was a year long. And I can remember that the more I listened to that show and the more I listened to those guys who are now podcast, well, they, they do a podcast now, but, you know, a radio sit down. As they were talking about Christless Christianity, I realized both my history from Young Life and then my, my current status of being in this um, all kind of focused church I was beginning to lose Christ in the midst of that, and we were beginning to lose Christ in the midst of that. But I think initially, if you would have said that to me, I'd have been like, you're full of baloney. Jesus is all around, you know. But really, what was all around was religion and behavior was mm-hmm. all around. Yeah, and a lot of condemnation, both from us um, and our attitude toward others. And I was always, always sort of watching my back, um, knowing that that the whole environment there was was sort of big brother like you know looking down each other's necks to see if everybody's behaving correctly yeah so a couple things not only the crisis christianity but i can clearly remember having a couple of thoughts come to mind and the first one was the one i just shared which was graduate church and do you remember me saying that? Like, I, I feel like we go to a graduate church. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a conversation one time where I thought, we are not the church you come to. We are the church you come to when you've been at another church for many, many years. And you've studied and you you kind of know everything. And, and now you're at this graduate church. So that was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second thing I remember was that term lifestyle evangelism. And I know I've written blogs on both of these because they mean a lot to me. Uh, the graduate church was one where my eyes started open, and then the the lifestyle evangelism, which was that I began to see that we were evangelizing people into a lifestyle, not into Jesus. And I really want our listeners to get this, that when I talk about lifestyle evangelism, I mean that if a new family came up and met the Fletchers and, and you know said, hey, Kendra and Andy, oh, you have eight kids, and man, they sit so still in church, and oh, they're all with you, and you just you look so perfect and you're wearing the the uniform of homeschoolers and you, you have the voice of homeschoolers and your wife blogs and blah, 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 blah. Tell us, you know, how do we get that? And it became evangelism as to what we did rather than whose we were. Kendra had her blog, her blog with preschoolers in peace. And therefore she kind of knew how to do the homeschooling thing um, it just it all just looked really good and the the hill to die on was we have to stay a traditional homeschool uh non charter school uh don't really try and ask for too much help family and and get it done regardless of of how hard it might be there's no other option for our family I mean, I was scared of you guys in all honesty because you had it so together with the way that you homeschooled and with the way you were filling your quiver. So um, it was very intimidating to me. So I kind of like was too, I would sit in the back and sort of just be ner- a nervous watcher of your family because you guys sat in the front. You kind of lined up. Maybe I think I remember according to age or something. And you guys just the front row was. Um, it just looked really really good. Yeah, so if, you know, in simple terms, instead of pointing people to Jesus, we were pointing people to what we were doing. Yeah, so family integration, Mm -hmm. that was a big one. Right. Homeschooling. Um, The other ones, and and there were some more issues of conflict there, as you guys have been listening to me as a podcaster, you have to realize, I never changed my love for culture or my engagement with culture. (laughs) And that just became a point of contention. There was a major 
major crisis that occurred. Yeah. And so Fletch, you have this whole thing going on spinning around you and I'm starting to get uneasy with the way things are because we're talking about being in a, an environment that was this Christless Christianity, you know, it was the law, the law, the law, the law, and the law never compels anybody to change anything. It's, it's grace and the gospel that floods in and shows us that we have a redeemer from the law. And so, you know, all of that's kind of starting to really affect us in positive ways. God is shepherding us back in a beautiful way. And all of that was great. And it all came crashing down that June morning when I walked into the baby's room and found him in a coma. All right, let's take a break. It was a hot June morning, and I was just thinking to myself, this little guy is sleeping a lot longer than he normally sleeps. He was only seven weeks old, and you know, I got the rest of the kids' breakfast, and I ran up the stairs. I opened our closet door, and he was in our little Moses basket, and he was unresponsive. His skin was clammy. His lips were blue. His eyes were rolled back into his head. And, you know, that's a crisis moment. That's a moment where 911 is the only, the only thing and, and a prayer, you know, God help me in this moment. The paramedics arrived in our home and they could see immediately that something was drastically wrong. And so we put this little guy in the back of an ambulance and I sat up front and we're just getting down the road, and all of a sudden, the EMT in the back says, his blood sugar's 13. And right then, the ambulance driver reaches under, turns on the siren, turns on the lights, and we just start flying down our road. I looked at him, and I said, what's normal? And he said, 60. Not not 16. Yeah, I know. 60. Um, and that little guy's blood sugar was th- at 13. His uh, protein levels were going through the roof. And, you know, I'm not a medical girl, so I don't, I don't know what these numbers mean. But obviously something is dreadfully wrong. We get to the ER. They can't do anything for him. In fact, they couldn't even put a line in him because he's just this teeny little guy. They had to get a nurse from the NICU to come down and do it. You know, just weren't prepared for the kind of care that a, a, a baby of this size needed in that crisis. And at one point I heard the charge nurse yell, he's going to die. We've got to get him out of here, you know, which is super comforting. Yeah. <laughs> and I know at that point I'm there with you. Uh-huh. You know, we're, we're finally kind of figuring this out together. Right. And so they were going to put him into an air or a helicopter, which they couldn't do because there were big fires on the coast of California that summer. Couldn't see. So they put him in the back of an acute care ambulance, slammed those doors. And you remember, we just got in the car with anything we had with us. Which was like uh, my bag from work and our clothes. Right, exactly. On our backs. Yeah, and I think I had scrubs on from my dental office. (laughs) And we just followed. We didn't even follow it. They were already gone. We just tracked down to... About an, about an hour and a half south yeah. of where we live. Right. And so we get there and they say, you can't come in. We need to run tests. And I, I remember running to Old Navy and just getting clothes off the clearance rack to sleep in yeah. that night. I mean, we really had nothing with shorts us. shorts and a shirt and thinking, we're only going to be here right. overnight. Overnight. Right? Yeah. No big deal. No yeah. big deal. And I can remember when we get back to that hospital and they finally welcome us in. And I remember the feeling when they took us into a dark room. It was comfortable. There were couches. And I'm thinking... We're not in the room with our baby. They're going to give us bad news. And it was dim lights. And Dr. Montez walked in and he said, we don't know what's wrong with your little boy. It, nothing makes sense. I want to start from the beginning. And he goes back through the day and we share all the details of the day. And he said, you know, this just doesn't make sense. If only, if only there was a sign like diarrhea. And I said, diarrhea? I I changed like six diapers in the emergency room. The problem was we kept changing the diapers when the entire staff was out of the room Mm -hmm. and they never saw these loaded diapers. And he said, I know what it is. And he walked out of the room and he said, keep your cell phone on. We'll call you if we need you. But he might not make it through the night. And we were released. Yeah. So, you know, we go to bed that night thinking this is it. We're losing our little one. We wake up that morning and they had called, but there was not uh, a sad response. It was just a, hey, you need to come down here (laughs) response. We get down there and our little boy is hooked up to every possible machine. He was in liver failure, kidney failure. He had brain damage and heart damage. At that point, they knew all of this. And I remember you walking into the room just to kind of coo over him. And I sat there and talked to the two doctors out in the 
the main area and they brought up his CT scan and mm. they proceeded to go through his brain and show me all the holes yeah. and said, this is the damage that's happened in 24 hours. And this is what you can expect before you go in the room to talk to your wife. Mm. You can expect your son to be blind, deaf, possibly a vegetable. They didn't, I don't think they use the term vegetable, but <laughs> non-responsive and seizing constantly. Um, if he makes it out of this hospital, you have a long road ahead of you. And I can remember through all of that, just feeling like the world was behind us because mm. we were being descended upon by emails and text messages and everything in our, you know, even our close parents, your parents lived in town. They were able to visit. My parents drove back from vacation and parked their motorhome for us to use in the, the hospital parking lot. And all these things were happening. And our hope, my hope was in every report from that doctor. You know, is he peeing? Are his kidneys back online? Are his mm. lungs working? Is his brain working? Um, and just to talk about what we said at the very beginning of this podcast, my hope was in a lot of things other than God, mm. which leads to the biggest part of this story. Yeah. Well, one night I was there by myself because, you know, this is a long road and you were, you had to work. <laughs> you had to actually be here seeing patients. And so, you know, I stayed down at that hospital most weeknights by myself and I was there just probably singing to him. I would do that every night. Um, and we had watched a vigil for a young woman for about three days. Um, they had brought her in to die. She was 16 years old. And so we had watched this that entire time. She, you know, they brought that priest in and they brought in the, the charismatic pastors who anointed her head with oil and sang over her. They brought in the dog. They brought in, you know, numerous family members. The waiting room um, in that PICU was packed with her family. Yeah. I mean, so packed that literally when I would walk out of there, I would have to say, excuse me, excuse me, to get through all the people that were there to support her. Um, and so one night I was there with Joe and, um, the curtains are drawn and the door is shut, but I can hear a mom wailing in the hallway. And I knew what had happened. She had lost her battle with cancer and that was her mom wailing out in the hallway for the loss of her daughter. And in that moment, um, I just clearly remember God saying, Kendra, you are so focused on all the wrong things. You are focused on your methods and how you do things and what church you're in and dress lengths and head coverings and all kinds of things that we were wrapping ourselves up in um, that weren't Jesus and weren't about Jesus. They were about our own good works. Um, and he just said, it's about me. It's all about me. That mom out in that hallway needs hope. She needs to know that this life, her daughter's death, her loss, they're about Jesus, it's redemption on the cross, and that there is hope for us. And you need to be in the business of giving people hope, the hope of the gospel. Let's take a break right here, because in case you think the story couldn't get any worse, <laughs> it does. That was a catalyst for you guys and for many, including me, like, where is our hope? You know, I never had the joy walking in as a Christian. There wasn't joy. It was rules and regulations. But hearing that there could be joy and peace and, uh, you know, that Jesus was the center of that, that was, that was new business. But I felt like that uh, kind of launched you guys. I guess maybe back to Jesus? Well, I think with Mighty Joe, um, you know, it was it was a wake-up call kind of shock to your family. Um, that was kind of like, you know, a record playing, kind of kind of like it, there was a skip. And uh and that caused a skip and I think that um was a was a part that kind of be, be, not that began because I think it was always kind of this this side um, side movement that you had uh, relative to wanting, as I said, to keep one foot in each world. But I think it, it, it started pulling you to more of what's, what's really important as opposed to just focusing on the doctrine or just focusing on the theology or what, it, what, what this um, looks like. It, it shouldn't have to look so um, scripted. 
uh, in terms of how we live out um, our faith. But I saw a real clinging to Christ and a, a real, a sharp, it just seemed like it was a sharp shift. And that all of a sudden these systems, there was nothing these systems could even do. There was, there was no, there wasn't even a, a shred of room for the system. I remember talking with, talking through things with Ken on the phone and just, okay, you know, this is, we gotta, we gotta cling to the truth of scripture and what the Lord tells us. Again, that helped you just open your eyes uh, a little larger to, we, we need to, we need to keep opening this up and, and getting bigger and bigger here because our focus has been too narrow. We had come home uh, from the hospital with Mighty Joe, and you know, if you've ever had a child in the hospital, it it takes time to get back to normal and back to routines, and and uh, just sort of feel like you're back to where the life was. And you know, here we had this very um, precarious situation with this baby. We didn't know what his little life would be like, um, and so some of that was getting back to starting to observe him and see how he fit into our family with his his brain damage and other issues he might have. And so we're starting to feel like life is returning back to normal. It was now December of that year, just after Christmas, and um, I went bowling with a couple of friends and our kids. We came back from bowling, and I pulled into the driveway. We have a, a circular driveway with a fountain in the middle and a curb that surrounds it. It's all landscaped, and it's very pretty. But as I pulled in, I normally parked on one side of that circle. And that day, I thought, you know, I'm going to pull around the circle, and then Fletch can come in and just park behind me. But our five-year-old assumed I was going to stop where I normally stop. She had flung open the door, was sitting on the side of the van, and she jumped out uh, right on right onto the concrete. I didn't know she had done this. Um, it's a big 12-passenger van. I was focused on parking. It's probably going about five miles an hour in our driveway, not very fast. But I thought I was going over the curb in the middle of that driveway um, until our kids were screaming, Mom, Mom, you're running over Ansley. And in that moment... Um, I just remember praying, Lord, prepare me for what I'm going to see. Turned off the car, I got out of the door, and I came around the back of the van, and she was sitting up crying. So your worst nightmare just took place. Oh, yeah. This was within months after um, singer Stephen Curtis Chapman's son had accidentally run over their little girl, and she had not lived. And that's what came flooding into my head. And I thought, uh, that's what I'm, I'm going to see my, my daughter dead yeah. um, on the ground. But she was sitting there and um, I said, honey, can you stand up? C- can you walk? And, and she did. She said, yes, but it hurts. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so she, she got, got ran over by her mom in by, the van. <laughs> exactly. A 12 passenger van. So she stood up. And we walked into the house, and she got about halfway up the stairs, and she's crying. And um, but there's no blood. There's no, you know, I don't see any bruising. There's nothing. There's not a broken bone that's sticking out of her or anything dangerous. So I rush her upstairs. I put her in a warm bathtub just to sort of calm her down and to calm myself down. And I just remember calling you and saying, "I ran over Ansley," and you know, you with all this medical knowledge said, "Well, is she peeing blood? Is she spitting up blood? Is she vomiting? Is she, she walk know, upstairs? Can she walk yeah. up the stairs? You know, all these things. Yes, yes. No, no, no. Not any of those things. Yes, she walked up the stairs. Um, and and so we made what we thought was a wise choice in the moment. And you know, whether it was or not, it's the choice we made. And yeah. we made it because we we honestly thought this was the best choice. We we live um, a little out of the ways of town, and faster than any ER um, is our friend, um, Dr. Beach, who's a chiropractor. And we thought, let's just run her over to John's office and he can x-ray her immediately and tell us what to do. And so that's what we did. Uh, ran her there. Uh, and he did. He, he didn't, he actually, he didn't even x-ray her. He just sort of kind of, you know, placed his hands where we thought she had been run over. And he said, you know, Kenj, I think it's uh, maybe a little fracture in her pelvis. So I run her to the ER, and this is the same ER yeah. we'd taken Joe to. Same ER. Yep. And so we, we go in, we get in there, and somebody in that ER was upset that we didn't call 911. 
Um, and so I didn't realize this until a couple hours of waiting there and, you know, whatever they were, we thought they were doing. Um, but they had called CPS. Yeah. And I can remember that's where I come into the story. I came in and there was a sheriff and he was asking me questions. And I thought, <laughs> it's funny. Th- and you're like, boy, they, this, you know, I'm not filing a claim against my insurance. I don't need law enforcement. <laughs> and then I kind of turned on. And I said, oh, you're here because you think something screwy happened. And I said, you know, I'm glad you're here. You know, we appreciate law enforcement. But you got a mama bear in that other room. And she's already devastated that this accident (laughs) happened. She's already upset that she ran over her daughter. To be accused of CPS violations or, you know, (laughs) some sort of thing like that, this is going to undo her. So tread lightly. (laughs) And I remember he was very understanding. Regardless, um, they sent CPS out to our home that evening. Uh, They actually put our little girl and me into an ambulance to go down to that children's hospital again because they, I don't know why actually. Now, in retrospect, I think think they knew she was fine, but they wanted to cover their bases. And so we we get transported down there. Um, This time I got to go with her and you stayed home and uh, that social worker came to our home. Yeah. It was complete I think you and I have two different stories actually about yeah, this. Yeah, go ahead and tell yours. Well, in in my world, I'm thinking this is it. They're taking my children. They think I'm a monster. My worst nightmare has come true. I have run over my child and now my second worst nightmare has come true. And they have called CPS and they think I'm a monster mother. So while I'm in that ambulance with Ansley, I'm freaking out. <laughs> so what are you doing at home with the rest of the kids? Yeah, so I bring everybody home, and you know the CPS worker that comes out is not a CPS worker. He's a um, abuse against elder care, but he's just filling in. And he tells me right off the bat, we have to cross the T's and dot the I's. I can already tell you. There's nothing fishy going on here, and this report will die in my office. So my experience is, let's just get through this. It's been a long day. You know, my wife's freaked out. She's down, you know, an hour and a half down, uh, and I need to reach her and just let her know everything's cool. But for our listeners, this is where hope shifting comes in. So where was your hope being displaced? Well, my hope was entirely in all of the people used in this situation. So my hope was in what the sheriff was going to say. My hope was in what our doctor was going to say and um, our chiropractor was going to say because we knew that they would call them. My hope was in the CPS worker. Just just all, anything, anything but God. And then actually, the hospitalist who had been Mighty Joe's doctor came in and was just wonderful to me. And my hope shifted to him. And I thought, oh, good, maybe the, he'll tell the hospital that I'm not a monster. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you're a listener of ours and you're going through a situation like this, whether it's health or whether it's, you know, a CPS investigation, um, these are the, the times where we will so quickly shift our hope. We talk about that pendulum and it shifts from the world to religion. And, you know, essentially we're shifting over to the world here. We're saying, oh, we hope that the government understands or that these things work out. But religion is just as evil on the other side Mm -hmm. saying, you're making deals with God. God, if you'll only do this, God, if you'll do this, you know, you know, as opposed to just trusting in him Mm -hmm. and knowing that he has your best in all of this. So in case you think this story has not been devastating enough from Mighty Joe's coma to Ansley getting run over, which is horrible, but then the second part triggering this falsified wrong CPS investigation that's stirred up fear, the story gets even crazier. And we'll be right back. This is John Wilkerson from The Wired Homeschool. I'm enjoying this story that took Fletch and Kendra from religious bondage to gospel-centered freedom. When you're done listening, why don't you head on over to The Wired Homeschool, thewiredhomeschool.com, where you'll find tech, tools, and tips for homeschooling the internet generation. That's thewiredhomeschool.com. I hope you'll head on over there and stick me in your ears. And now, let's stick Fletch and Kendra back into your ears. All right, so we've had these two crazy situations with two kids, and I know what we're coming out of here is a renewal back to Jesus and remembering that our hope is in Christ, 
Um, and we don't need to be tied up in all of these systems and all of these crazy behaviors. And I can remember it, it was eating at us. Mm-hmm. And as that year went on, um, after Ansley's accident, it just became more of a vernacular in our family. And we rediscovered the gospel. I can remember um, just talking about it a lot and re- reminding each other that we don't need all these systems that we put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember this coming to a head when we got together with one of the leaders at our church and, and we'd had a conversation and went something like this. You remember? What did you say? Yeah, I actually was telling him the story of the young woman who had died while we were there uh, with Mighty Joe. And I said... It is all about Jesus. <laughs> and that's when the statement that came back said, you know, the problem with saying that it's all about Jesus, and then they went on. And I remember <sighs> saying, there is no problem with saying it's all about Jesus. Right. It's all about Jesus. Right. End of story, period, end of report. Right. Um, but I can remember that was a Thursday night, and we had all been sick, mm-hmm. and we were out having coffee, mm-hmm. and we came back home and our daughter was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us had been sick, but Caroline was kind of hanging on a little bit longer than the rest of us. She was. She was eight at the time. And I remember thinking, you know, the rest of us are getting better. And she would say things to me like, mommy, my tummy hurts. And I'd say, oh yeah, mine does too. You know, when you throw up a lot, your stomach hurts, you know, and these yep. are the kind of conversations we're having. Very normal. Um, but you came home that Thursday night and you said, you know, I wonder if she's getting a little dehydrated. Let's let's push the fluids, you know, let's really get her drinking and stuff. And then if she's not looking better in the morning, I'm going to take her in. And I said, okay, great. Well, the next morning, she was in septic shock. Yeah. Eyes rolled back mm-hmm. and un- unresponsive. unresponsive. I was asking her questions about her favorite Disney princesses, and there were no, there was like nobody was home. Mm-hmm. I scooped her up and I put her in the van, and we ran to the same ER we'd been to <laughs> twice before, because this time we weren't going to wait for anything. <laughs> we were right. heading to the ER. Right. And um, I'd, on, on route, I called a friend who was a doctor, an ER doctor. He was at home, miracle. Mm-hmm. He picked up the phone, miracle. He yeah. said, I'll meet you at the hospital, miracle. Mm-hmm. And he was waiting out in front with a wheelchair as I pulled up, and he took her right through triage. And took her right back to x-rays and said, this girl needs to be x-rayed. She said he already knew what was going on. He did. He suspected what the problem was. And in fact, it was... It was a ruptured appendix. A ruptured appendix. And that ruptured appendix, once they got in her into emergency surgery within an hour, uh, it took them 15 minutes to remove that, that infected appendix and 45 minutes to clean her out. They said... She had probably, it had probably ruptured 24 to 48 hours before we had gotten her in there. You know, to make the story kind of quick, she was in for 21 days. 21 days. Now, I don't know about our listeners, but prior to this, I thought, oh, appendix, it's like tonsils. You know, you yeah. go in, they take it out, you go wisdom home the teeth. next day. It's, it's no like big deal. Teeth. You're in, you're right. out. Yeah. Exactly. And, and in fact, that's true if it hasn't ruptured. And then if it hasn't ruptured to such a state. And so we're there a week and she's not getting better. They take her in again. They place a drain deep within her. Um, this will, this is great. This will, you know, get the infection. We can get her home. No, two weeks later, it's not, she's not getting better. Uh, and we have some bad news. We need to place a drain so deeply in her pelvis that it needs to skirt her femoral artery to get that in there. Two surgeons, if you remember, two surgeons could do this surgery and neither of them wanted to do it because it was an eight-year-old girl. Yeah. And neither wanted to take responsibility for her life, which I absolutely understand. Yeah. But it was about 24 hours of waiting before, I guess they played Rochambeau or something to figure <laughs> out who was going to do this surgery. And then one of them finally stepped up and said, you know, I'll, I'll take that responsibility. And so we do that. Um, she lives, they place that drain, but it was a full 21 days in ICU yeah, before and that, we could get that her That did home. clear her up and she did come home. But let mm-hmm. me stop again one more time and ask you some questions. Um, when I was taking her back to the same hospital, yeah, did you have any issues with your hope again? Absolutely. I struggled deeply with going back to that hospital because I'll tell you, after the CPS incident, I was just sure, 
they were hovering over our family. Yeah. I was just sure that every day there was somebody assigned to the Fletcher family <laughs> who was looking through all the paperwork and looking in our windows and watching me drive up and away from our home. And none of those things are true. Okay. But I was so fearful, and my hope was not in God, even though he had our backs. And then we had you know, these multiple re-entry surgeries to get infection out. Right. And we found that our hope kept spilling back over to doctors and yeah. to results. You know, right. if only they do this, if only they do this. And then at the end, you know, they told us, um, you know, with, do the amount of radiation down in her pelvis and due to the size of the infection deep in her pelvis, you know, she may have um, issues later reproductively. Mm -hmm. And I remember again, you know, crushing us mm -hmm. and saying, oh, you know, and again, yeah. shifting our hope and, and just saying, oh, well, we hope that her body works out the way it's supposed to work. And again, this reminder that our hope is to be in God and our security is in Christ. Um, but what happened the night before we had gone into this hospital setting? We had just had this conversation saying, it's all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So here we have the big three, Mighty Joe, Lola, or Ansley, and then Caroline. That rocked our world. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we were awakened once and for all to the gospel. And we realized then that we had been playing a game for too long, a mm -hmm. game that involved behavior, homeschool behavior, a game that involved religious behavior, uh, theological behavior, doctrinal behavior, and then, then this other full side thing, like how you're going to behave and how you're going to do life and do church, that all came undone in, in, in a good way. Like we're just letting go right? and we're going to focus back on Jesus. And we rediscovered the gospel and that's when things got really tricky for us in our social settings and in our religious settings. A deep breath, if that makes any sense. I feel like there was an ability to breathe deeply. I, I, that's the only thing I think of with Kenj, is I feel like Kenj just went <sighs> with a big deep breath and an exhale. There was an ability to say, I'm okay. And, you know, I don't have to do all this performance. We'd really bought into a system. We bought into this ultra-conservative uh, church, uh, homeschooling uh, movement that could only be done a very specific way, and and it, and that process became a religion. And I and I think um, in the in the thought or the phrase of losing our religion, uh, it was a good thing. At the same time, like you said, freeing and confidence, a confidence underneath, knowing that. It isn't up to us. Because I really don't think there's a better way to call it than a religious setting. Because yeah. if you were going to say that that was a fellowship setting, it was really more of a religious setting. You know, what, what gets lobbed at people like us, <laughs> the, the accusation is, well, when you say it's all about Jesus, or, you know, when it's all about the gospel, or it's all about grace, then, you know, then you just open up a can of worms and everybody can live licentiously. And I don't, I don't know who that Christian is that says, oh, I'm all in, I love Jesus, I trust him, I want to follow him, but I'll just go do whatever the heck I want. Who, yeah. who is that Christian? Yeah. You know, any of us who's been transformed by the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, any of us who understand the depth of his love and, the, and who are living in the overflow of that, living as loved, we desire greatly to have his Holy Spirit change us. And to become more like him. And so that is what we began to see. And, and here's the amazing thing I began to, began to realize. I had wanted to follow God for 40 years at that point in my life. It had been 40 years. I had not seen more spiritual growth in my entire life than I have in the last five years of my life. Now, it's funny that you bring that up because I did um, notice in my own life I've had tremendous growth yeah. in five years. I've had the hardest five years of my life. <sighs> and I'm not talking about Joe, Ansley, or Caroline. Right. I'm talking about the freedom that the gospel has brought to me has allowed me to go deeper into things that I had been hiding. 
yeah. um, in previous years. So, you know, again, hurlers, um, if you're listening to this story, where we're going to go next is getting very personal and transparent. There were plenty of things we were hiding in our marriage. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of things we were hiding in our parenting. Um, we were, we were, uh, parenting with a behavior mindset and, you know, we were, we, we were, I was a control freak is basically what I, mm -hmm. what I want to get to. So, you know, you have to behave this way. You have to behave this way. And if you go back and listen to episodes one through 44, everything should make sense now. As we came to gospel freedom, suddenly we were released of a lot of that bondage. Right. And, you know, why did we start homeschooling in real life? This is the real life part. We want to reach back into homeschooling that we were in and say, come out into the light. Mm -hmm. You know, let's live life truthfully and let's be transparent. And that's what allows us now to be able to say with anybody, hey, this is what's going on in our marriage today. This is what's going on in our parenting today. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be devastated. We're not going to be, oh, so embarrassed by mm -hmm. our kids' behavior. You know, at church, when you find out that your kid is the one that's slamming the grape juice and <laughs> eating the, the wafers at church, like, I'm no longer embarrassed by that. Like, oh, I've got the worst kid here. I'm just doing a horrible job parenting. You know, we're terrible homeschoolers. It's, okay, so <laughs> my kid's acting like a kid. Right. And I missed it for a second when I should have been watching him. Wait a minute. My kids are sinners? It's as if they're being raised by sinners. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, that that kind of brings us here. We have a, a couple more key points in the story I think we can point out before we wrap up tonight. Um, I think along the way, uh, just gospelizing one another mm -hmm. over and over and over again, and then ending up in a fellowship that the pastor does that mm -hmm. from the pulpit. And he does that in conversation. Yeah. And, you know... He, he will ask you questions, uh, identity questions from mm -hmm. the pulpit. He'll ask mm -hmm. the, the congregation. Oh, he won't just do it from the pulpit. No, he'll do it at a party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he'll, and, but, but we'll do that in yeah. our family and we'll do yes. that in our community group. Yes. And, and I hear my teens do it with one another. I hear them say, where are you, where are you putting your hope? Or are you, you know, you're loved, you're accepted just, just as you are. You don't need that, you know, or yeah. those people or that situation to make you feel like you have worth and value or to give you that. You have that in Jesus. I hear them talk like this to each other. And so when we hear it, you know, in homeschooling, we'll be the first to call you out as our listeners and say, hey, you know what? Homeschooling will not save your ch your kids. And homeschooling will make things difficult on your marriage. It's okay. Talk about it out loud. Yeah. And when we were in Nashville, we did a session on how um, hard times will make your marriage better. And we have found every single time, as soon as we're transparent about what's going on in our marriage, whether it's uh, tension or depression or um, just, no, that's my life, <laughs> tension <laughs> and depression, mm -hmm. um, people immediately will come up and say, here's what's going on in our marriage right? or here's where we're living in fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we hope that as you've listened to this story tonight, um, those same things happen. Like, you know what? You're cool. It's fine. Jesus has your back. Live as loved and uh, find that place where you can be transparent. And if you're not in a community that allows that, well, you're in one here with us mm -hmm. and it might be virtual. Yeah. You know, Fletch, one thing I've heard you say over and over again to everyone, not just our kids, but to friends, to, you know, to patients, probably, if I'm there chair side with you, is there's nothing you can say that's going to shock me. We've heard it all. We have heard people unpack the most egregious sins. Every sin is egregious, yeah. but you know, the, the things that are things so that we think are so shocking. Horrible. Yeah. Right, exactly. And and it allows us to be safe with one another because I'm always going to point you back to Jesus. Instead of sitting there in my self righteousness and condemning you and and comparing what a better what a better Christian I am than you are because I behave a certain way. That's a lie and Satan wants us to believe it. But when we're transparent, there's nothing that should shock us about each other. We're all sinners. We're all covered in the perfect blood of the Lamb. Those are words of hope. Yeah. And those are words that we can, can trust. And as we head into Easter this week, uh, our encouragement to you is to 
revisit the gospel, unpack mm-hmm. it. It's this isn't something we we pack up every year and then pull down for Easter and look at it and say, "Oh, Jesus died on the cross, save us from our sins, so we could live forever." Yada yada yada. Got it. You know, we we live in the gospel every day, <laughs> every day, and that doesn't mean I wake up every day and say, "Jesus died on the cross, save us from our sins." It means I I live in that identity. Yeah. It says. I'm a saved individual, mm-hmm. um, I'm redeemed, and I'm safe, and I am loved. And when I, when I can truly live as loved, that means I can be honest with everyone around me, but including myself. And I can say, you know what, man? You screwed up again today. That's okay. <laughs> Talk about yeah. it out loud. It's okay. You don't need to bury this one. Right. You, you can live this one out loud. And we're going to do a, a show coming up about transparency with your kids and about how being transparent with your kids, um, especially when we found this out, that it really opens some doors for some deep, rich conversations and mm-hmm. healing if there's mm-hmm. been hurts and advancement if there's been um, stagnation mm-hmm. with your kids. You just find out that when they realize that you are their brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as their dad and mom, um, you'll just see how doors open. So we're going to get there. All right, that whole story could have been called Waking Up from Gospel Amnesia. Yeah. You know, it's how the gospel penetrated our family and how we lost our religion. I love the title of it. I love that mm. we could use REM music behind it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I just love that that was an episode where we really just bared our souls. And that is what people replied about. Yeah. You guys were just being honest. You were being you on that episode. That and- was after a lot of years of not being us because being us was scary and risky and um, people might not like it. So, you know, Fletch, you said something to me the other night that keeps bouncing around in my head. And I think you got this from the Life is Good book that you've been reading. Yeah, right. Yeah. And essentially the quote is, know who you are and act like it. Yeah. And that is, you know, when we lost our religion, I often tell people I refound the Jesus that I fell in love with. I Mm -hmm. woke up from gospel amnesia. You know, that is the principle behind the homeschooling in real life community yeah. that we're trying to build. In other words, you know, drop the hope shifting. Mm-hmm. Come join a community of people where, you know, we we are no means <laughs> these cult leaders of a new community, but we have organized a community on homeschooling in real life where we are going to encourage you to live as loved. Now, what do we mean by that? You're going to live freely, you're going to live recklessly, you're going to live fearlessly because you are so loved by the Father. Who you are is in Christ. You are His. You are identified by what Jesus has already done for you. Now you get to take that out and act like it. Right. And that's exactly what we're hoping for. So head on over to homeschoolingirl.com slash subscribe. Join that community. You know, we are heading in to our next season in our next episode. Let me tell you what's coming up. Our very first episode, we have found it necessary to sit back down in front of the microphones and allow ourselves to be interviewed. What we want to do in that very first episode is kick off again a reminder of what homeschooling in real life is. We want our listeners to be able to go to that episode and say, you know, what is homeschooling in real life? And for us to be able to explain it so that there is no confusion. You know, people will tell us often on reviews, well, they don't give a lot of homeschooling advice. You know, Mm-hmm. And you've got to realize that homeschooling in real life, that's not what we're doing. We're not reviewing curriculum. We're not talking about the latest and greatest new writing program. It will come in passing, mm-hmm. but that's not who we are. Yeah. You know, we're talking about living like real believers, living as loved. So we're going to start off there. We have two episodes coming up after that on spiritual abuse. We're going to be talking about teen boys and moms. We're going to talk about traveling with our kids. And then once again, we're going to have Dr. Melanie Wilson. She's a Christian psychologist, and uh, she is uh, running the Psycho with Six uh, website. And she's going to come back on to talk about a topic that she brought up that she wanted to go back over. Yeah. Is me time necessary? And I'm looking really forward to having Dr. Wilson back on. So if you want to reach out to us, Kenj, how do they do that? Please find us on Facebook. That's a hopping little community. Facebook.com slash homeschooling IRL. You can tweet to us on Twitter at homeschool IRL. You can email us info at homeschoolingirl.com. And then creme de la creme, you can become part of our community, which is free and super easy. Go to our website, homeschoolingirl.com slash subscribe and become a member. 
Hey, thanks for giving us this month off to take a break. We look forward to starting off the new season with you next week. We'll talk to you then. You've been listening to the Homeschooling in Real Life podcast. Everything on this podcast was written and produced by Andy and Kendra Fletcher. For more information, or if you'd like to contact your hosts, please visit them on homeschoolingirl.com. dot